this is the first of uh, eight lectures on nutritional anthropology. And this first one contextualizes a lot of what will happen in subsequent lectures. Uh, and today I'm going to be talking about um, evolution of the human diet. Uh, why is this important? Well, it's important because it's been brought up in um, contemporary debate about what is the natural human diet, what should humans be uh, really eating, when we know that the way that our contemporary diet in industrialised society has been messed around so much that it's associated with a, a whole range of, of chronic diseases. <coughs> when we know that um, the food supply in much of the world is controlled by a small uh, number of interests and its control is in um, a, a significant part of the, the, the globalisation debate. The majority of the world um, now relies on wheat as a staple. Um, it's uh, uh, become ever more so as the control of the, uh, of the food chain is increasingly among um, uh, uh, the, the big agri-producers. And the extent to which the United States food and agriculture policy dominates the rest of the world's food system is also something that is being, uh, being debated. There is also um, a significant literature about the so-called Stone Age diet. If we all return to the diet we're supposed to be consuming, um, which is the paleo diet, if you will, uh, then we should all revert to um, uh, lower levels of chronic disease and we should all be a lot healthier. So there are a number of um, articles, publications, newspaper articles about the Stone Age diet um, uh, that we should be eating more nuts and berries, if we will. We should be eating much less refined carbohydrate. A lot of this stuff makes common, is just good common sense. But um, it brings into question, a number of people have brought into question the idea that we should be eating so much um, refined carbohydrate. If, for example, you were to look at the food pyramid for the UK or the United States, um, you would find carbohydrate foods being the predominating part of the diet. That is, the chunk of the, bo of the bottom of the pyramid is, is carbohydrates. Now, that is not necessarily science. That's, a lot of that is politics, because these are the foods that are produced by these countries. And if you say the Stone Age diet actually contained very little carbohydrate, it would call into question um, majority food systems on the planet. But that debate is going on, so it's a very contemporary one. But it's hugely problematic. It's problematic because defining what the paleo diet is, what the natural human diet is, uh, can be anything you want it to be. How far back do we need to go? Do we need to go back as the Stone Age? Far as the Stone Age, the Stone Age nominally is um, when uh, humans were using uh, using stone tools and were already shaping the environment through the use of, of uh, early technologies. So, is it to around twelve thousand years and back before that? Um, that is before the transition to agriculture. Is it? Um, to a time when humans, in evolutionary terms, uh, diverged from chimpanzees. And that would take us back six million years. If we take, us back, if we take ourselves back six million years, then we should be naturally fruit eaters. If we take ourselves back to the Stone Age, then we might be more naturally meat eaters. Uh, if we take ourselves back to 
Australopithecines, these are hominins post-chimpanzee divergence around 4 million years ago, then we'd be broadly vegetarian with some meat. If we take ourselves back 2 million years to Homo erectus, then we'd be large-scale meat-eating people, possibly. Um, although that itself has been contested, particularly by Richard Wrangham at Harvard University. What we do know is that what we eat now, what is served up on the supermarket shelf, um, is not what we evolved to eat. We did not evolve to eat potato chips, um, uh, fizzy drinks. Um, I'm struggling here. All kinds of all kinds of uh, uh, processed foods, uh, which which sim- many of which didn't even exist 50 years ago. Uh, so where did it all go wrong? Did it all go wrong at the origins of agriculture? Well, the origins of agriculture, agriculture was a, was a clear technological response to a major problem, which is feeding um, growing populations. It was successful in one way, but unsuccessful in others. And I'll go on to talk about this in, in subsequent lectures. Did it all go wrong with industrialization? When mm. industry happens, then people need to live in larger population densities, uh, they are taken out of food production, so people are no longer individually in control of their, in, in, in control of their food production and their food supply. Uh, and then you start to rely on uh, specialist producers. At the time of industrialization, there was also in places like the UK and the US, they were part of global structures. In the UK, for example, there is a traditional northern dish called, Yorkshire, uh, called, um, uh, called rice pudding. Okay? That's rice, it's sugar, it's milk, and it's seen as very traditional. Rice does not grow in the UK. Sugar became a major component in the British diet only with the early globalisation of the 17th century. And yes, we've always had milk, but the combination of those three things was actually imported from India, and it's become traditionally British. Not British at all. It's actually a global food. But these things become indigenized in different, in different parts of the world and become traditional. But that particular example illustrates that globalization of food was already in place um, in, the, in the 18th century. What we now think about globalization as being is the tearing down of trade barriers all over the world, whereby, for example, Mexico can have its own food system threatened by global forces because of the trade agreements it makes uh, between um, the United States and Canada, for example. Uh, so we have all kinds of problems with deciding what is, what is natural. Well, I'm going to take a step back from this, having introduced the issue, and take this in several parts and try to, try can, try to deconstruct it. First of all, the question, what is diet for? Take a straightforward biological approach, and we can say, well, it's for survivorship. You know, people think more about food than about sex. I've heard it said that in any 50-minute talk, uh, people listen for about the first 20 minutes, then people, most people switch off and other people's minds turn to sex. Well, for that third group, I hope you enjoy yourself across this talk. Uh, but otherwise, uh, food and sex um, are biologically the most fundamental things in any species of life, however that sex might take place. 
We can deconstruct that into ideas of population adaptability. We all need to eat. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have some kind of adaptation to our diet. What we eat allows us to grow, it allows us to maintain our bodies, it allows us to reproduce and it allows us to produce. However that production happens, whether it's physically by growing things or hunting things or <coughs> gathering things or by trading our time for some symbolic unit that allows us to trade that for food. That is money, usually. So, we have the idea of um, a diet that we may be adapted to. But, you know, there are all kinds of examples of, of, of maladaptation in <clears throat> the human diet. Can I just ask you to put up your hands if you are lactose intolerant? Anyone? One. Two, three. Three people lactose intolerant in a room of, I'm trying to guess here, maybe 40 or 50 people. That's a significant percentage. That's not far off what you would expect. Um, is there anybody who is gluten intolerant in this room? Anybody at all? Okay, nobody that's gluten intolerant. Those are the two most common food intolerances on the planet. If you consume significant amounts of milk and you're lactose intolerant, it will result in diarrhea. If you can picture yourself as a, a, a child in hunter-gatherer society and at this seminal moment somebody decides that milking a cow is a good thing or milking any animal is a good thing and they give you this milk and you consume it but this simply does not agree with you. You have never consumed huge amounts of milk. Well, as a young child, what's most likely to happen is you're not going to get rushed to casualty and somebody's going to identify your, gluco your, your, your um, <coughs> lactose intolerance. You're going to get diarrhea, severe diarrhea. What goes with that severe diarrhea is usually death if it can't be sorted out, if you carry on with that process. So a lot of natural selection has taken place in relation to the... Um, human diet, and how we respond to novel elements in the diet. diet dietary experimentation has always gone on. <coughs> dietary experimentation these days, does, for, for us, usually does not result in death, except in extreme circumstances. I can name one extreme circumstance you will probably never have heard of, which is called Konzo. Um, it's a neuropathy that has been identified in West Africa, um, among groups of people that have taken on cassava as a famine crop, where they don't have the traditional technologies for processing that cassava. So in places that use this root crop cassava, it contains high levels of cyanide. You process it in various ways, but the major thing is to keep all the carbohydrate there and get rid of all the toxins, so detoxifying the food. In places where cassava has been adopted recently as a famine crop, people haven't necessarily processed it particularly well. In the rush to get dietary calories, people have scrimped and you know, have, have cut corners in, uh, in the processing. And so neuropathies have emerged that were really strange and difficult to understand, except when they got a nutritional anthropologist involved and identified the issue as being a new... Uh, subsistence crop, which was meant to be insurance against uh, uh, against food insecurity, but 
not adopting the full technologies resulted, resulted in new medical problems. And that was only in the 1990s. This is a fairly, fairly recent one. We are constantly um, adapting to, to our diet, and it hasn't changed. Now, I'm going to take the rest of this talk in three, three parts. Nutritional requirements and nutritional adaptation. We take the idea of nutritional requirements for granted. We take as gospel uh, the governmental recommendations for what we should be eating. How much energy, how much protein, how much, um, how much of the different fats, how, many of the, how much of the different fatty acids, of the vitamins and, uh, and, and, and other micronutrients. Um, but the story about nutritional requirements is um, one that continues to be updated as the science improves, but also the idea of nutritional adaptation crept into the picture in the 1980s when <clears throat> ideas about um, ideal body size and ideal nutrition started to be replaced with a much more messy reality, which was that in some places people had much smaller body size and the food production systems could not cope with generating um, adequate levels of those nutrients. There is one nutrient for which there is no nutritional requirement, um, and that is omega-3 fatty acids. In some places they give it, in other places, they don't. But if you were to ask every person in the People's Republic of China and every person in the state of India um, to obtain their nutritional requirement for omega-3 fatty acids, the most common source of omega-3s on the planet is fish. We are currently depleting the global fish supply. You may be the last generation, unless things change, and I hope they do, to, to eat wild fish. <coughs> if everybody in China and everybody in India were to meet their omega-3 requirements, um, then uh, you would soon deplete the world's fish resources. There simply isn't enough natural omega-3 in the planet to, to meet requirements. So you have requirements that hit straight into uh, 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 ecological realities. Uh, okay, then I'm going to go into life history and nutrition, and then diet and, and nutritional ecology. Okay, what are nutritional requirements? We know that we need different nutrients. Since the last 100 years or so, we know that we need vitamins, we know that we need minerals, and um, there's a growing list of what nutritional requirements are. You don't need to know, for the purposes of this course, exactly what does what, um, apart from some general principles. So if we need to maintain health and reproduce and be active and reduce the risk of diet-related diseases, then we need um, to get a certain amount of different things. And these vary for different nutrients between individuals. So even if you have an average number, there is great biological variability for nutritional requirements. I could say that the physiological requirement for vitamin C, on average, is about 20 milligrams, more or less. Uh, the, 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 the British requirements are set at 30 or above, and uh, to, to, account for biological to account for biological variability, but within this room, there would be one individual whose requirement for vitamin C would be less than 10 milligrams. And somehow, they would be getting by on pizza and beer 
as a diet and getting enough vitamin C from, the, from their beer to be able to avoid scurvy. And of course, nutritionists hate those people, but they're out there. There'll be other people in this room whose vitamin C requirement will be 40 or 50 milligrams. And for whom uh, a diet of pizza and beer is going to lead to a very pallid complexion, very weakness, and eventually at some stage their teeth will fall out uh, if, they, if they keep going long enough. That's just biochemical variability. Everybody has it. Nutritional requirements divide basically up into micro and macronutrients. Macronutrients are energy and protein. And protein can come from a whole range of foods. Energy can come from a whole range of foods. Energy uh, can come from um, animal foods, which are uh, high in, uh, in protein. Protein can interchange into energy if you consume too much of it. And in some circumstances, in some places where people don't get um, enough uh, uh, adequate energy, then sometimes protein can be used preferentially as energy within the body. So those two are sometimes interchangeable. That's why people talk about protein energy malnutrition, acknowledging the relationship between the two things. Macronutrients, vitamins, A, B, C, D, we all know the alphabet, uh, E, etc. Vitamins B divide up into a whole range of, of, uh, of, uh, of B1, 2, 3, 6, 12, and, and so on. Minerals are things that are found in the body. Calcium, iron, phosphorus, magnesium, sodium, potassium, um, zinc, copper, selenium. All of these things have some kind of role in the body, whether it's structural in terms of bone tissue with, with calcium and phosphorus, or whether it is as, uh, as a coenzyme in, in a number of uh, 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 um, uh, 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 physiological biochemical uh, systems like zinc, copper, selenium, and so on. So... We have a need for a lot of different things, but general principles are that nutritional requirements vary. The nutritional requirements that are set for India are lower than they're set for the UK or the United States. In the US, you'll find that nutritional requirements are set higher because there is a sense of aspirational component built into nutritional requirements. You may not really know how much selenium you need in the body, but you'll set the requirement for it because you know it's found there and it must be doing something. Whereas in the UK, elsewhere, you wouldn't put a requirement on it because we don't really know what it does physiologically. <clears throat> How do nutritional requirements vary? They vary according to age, sex, according to level of physical activity and according to the state of health. All of these things are moving. So there's a life history component to nutritional requirements. Of course, a smaller body needs less nutrients. But per unit of body size, it may need more nutrients because there needs to be a growth component incorporated. It has been argued, and it's still not accommodated, that in places in the developing world where people are exposed to infectious disease constantly, there should be an additional nutritional component added for the stresses of infection, which they're not at the moment. Fever increases energy requirements because you're burning more energy. It raises protein requirements because you're, you're generating high levels of acute-based proteins and other aspects of the immune system. And that additional requirement could be between 10 and 20% greater protein needs per day than, 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 than the requirements stipulate. And those things are not accommodated. Also, some people absorb or utilize nutrients more efficiently than others, so will have lower than average nutritional requirements. It's not very easy, all of this. 
and it's been statisticalized. Uh, most energy, most nutrient requirements are set with safe levels of intake, uh, apart from energy, because you, if you were to add two standard deviations onto um, acceptable um, uh, physiological levels of energy intake, you'd be um, creating circumstances for population obesity. But what happens with most nutrients is the estimated average requirement is a, is a, physiological, is a phys physiological construct. That is, if you know actually how much people need, um, then that is that average. So in this room, for vitamin C requirements, for example, the average, the ERA, would be around 20 milligrams. Then you've got a lot of people down at the bottom, a number of people up at the top. So to set a um, lower reference nutrient intake and a, a, a reference nutrient intake, that's the usual number. It's the amount of a nutrient that's enough to ensure that the needs of nearly all the group, 97.5%, are met. That 97.5 approximation is two standard deviations, more or less, above the area. So it's a statistical construct. It's not really based on physiology. To say, if we set the requirement up here, at 30 milligrams for vitamin C, for example, then everybody should get enough. And those that are getting too much vitamin C, even though they're meeting this, they're just peeing away all the rest of it in, in their urine. There are other complexities. I mean, you can't pee away ex excess energy, and you can't pee away excess vitamin A. And you know, there are issues of... How high can you set the upper limit if you want to avoid the other problem, which is potential toxicity? There are also potential problems with protein toxicity. If you were to try and eat a diet that was totally protein, um, you could actually kill yourself uh, because you your body simply couldn't handle the amount of uh, uh, ammonia that would be produced by deaminating all that excess protein that we, you were using as, using, using as energy. So, I mean, there are anecdotal and, and historical accounts of so-called rabbit starvation in, in, in the United States by early settlers. You know, you want to kill a rabbit, you can eat lots of rabbits um, and get a lot of very good lean protein from rabbit. But if you're eating nothing else, you're stacking up proteins for problems for yourself. Most meat, fortunately, actually carries quite a bit of fat in it anyway, so it's very difficult to, to create protein, uh, protein toxicity. But um, that is at the, uh, at, the, at the extreme extreme. Okay. Uh, when did nutritional requirements evolve, and how did they evolve? All of this has to be framed within a, a, an evolutionary framework because... Um, what is human about human nutritional adaptation? This is one particular um, evolutionary scenario. It's a, it's a taxonomy. Uh, there are many taxonomies, and uh, evolution, human evolutionary scientists argue over the correct taxonomy according to particular evidence. That is less important than acknowledging um, the fact that we are Homo sapiens sapiens. We've got big brains. We've changed so much of our planet, we've changed so much of our diet, and what we eat now is not what archaic Homo sapiens would have eaten, um, say, 40,000 years ago. Uh, Homo erectus is reputed to be the first big meat-eating hominin. Uh, so did we really become meat-eaters with, hom with Homo erectus? 
Australopithecines ate huge amounts of, 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 of grain and animal products, uh, uh, plant products, sorry. And can we say that really we should be vegetarian or more vegetarian because we're truly Australopithecine? Or should we go back further? There are problems with this because when we say we are evolved to consume a particular kind of diet, uh, the desire for sweetness isn't a particularly human thing. It's not a particularly <coughs> mammalian thing. Ants are attracted to sweet things. So if we put things in an evolutionary frame, we, we, we can't just bundle everything into an evolutionary past because how that adaptation happened would have been different across different times in, 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 in prehistory. What we have is a composite picture of nutritional adaptation that would be um, simultaneously of the generalized animal kingdom, um, of, um, of, of, of uh, mammalian systems, of primate systems, of hominin systems, and it carries on to the present day. We have a composite picture which can't be just bundled into a stone age when everything happened, because that, you know, there may have been an an environment of evolutionary adaptedness when many things happened. But many of our um, dietary preferences, our kind of um, archaic brain food preferences, go way beyond that. <clears throat> so what are the issues? If you look at macronutrients, what are the issues? Uh, dietary energy, even just thinking about dietary energy, we get an energy from sugar, we get energy from white bread these days, uh, but we neglect something that's quite fundamental, that fibre, something that is good for bulking out our faeces and making sure we don't get colon cancer, um, it lowers our cholesterol level and all that sort of thing. But if we look at chimpanzees, if we look at other primate species, then they would be using fibre as a source of energy they are able to do a much higher level of large gut fermentation that will bring um, fiber, make fiber digestible and release its energy for general consumption. Humans have lost that ability. Now, at some stage in human evolution, um, the change in gut morphology would have lost that particular, humans would have lost, hominins would have lost that particular adaptation. Maintenance metabolism. This is lowest in the tropic, highest in the Arctic. This is among contemporary populations. You know, how much energy you burn on a daily basis just by staying alive, your basal metabolic rate, how much energy you burn when you're fast asleep, that has considerable variation. If you go to India, then that basal metabolism is, can be 10 to 15% lower than it is among Europeans. If you go to Arctic populations, and it's about the same number in the other direction. If you take a European, as one European did in the 1930s, took a boat to India, and then all, all the way to, to, to Melbourne, Australia, and me measured his basal metabolic rate every few days, uh, I guess he was bored on the boat, he had to do something, uh, but what he found that his basal metabolic rate dropped as he got to the tropics, and went up again as he got to, to Melbourne, Australia in winter. So we're all able to have an adaptive metabolic rate. Who, um, who is a pathological fitness 
enthusiast. At least one. Two. Any more? Three? More? Okay, what's this good news? You know, um, if you uh, perform at least two hours of, 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 of intensive physical activity a day, um, then your basal metabolism goes up. And it can go up for the next 24 hours. So if you're doing this on a daily basis, you're actually burning energy for free, which is good in this environment of plentiful food. If you are one of these crazy masochistic people who likes to throw themselves into ice-cold water in winter, um, if you have a Scandinavian orientation, for example, Northern European, I have a friend who's a, a winter swimmer in Germany, and I ask him what the appropriate temperature is, and he says, when the water is just a little bit crackly, you know, that means there's just a, just a millimetre of ice on it. That's, that's perfect for him. Um, he hasn't had a heart attack yet, um, but um, after throwing himself into cold water for 20 minutes, he is burning energy for the rest of the day. His metabolic rate goes up. So there are ways in which humans manipulate their basal metabolic rate. Now, we are, separate ourselves from the physical environment to a huge extent. This room is simply too hot for this time of year. And it's not necessarily, not necessarily so good for us. It means that you know, we have basal metabolic rate that isn't actually doing much in terms of in terms of adjusting to the environment. But it's out there, and it's, it's something that uh, we all have. Energy, there's also ease of overeating. Everybody can do it. But you can make a sheep overeat. I have a colleague at the Route Research Institute in Aberdeen who prides himself on his ability to overfeed sheep to, to an incredible extent. It shouldn't be allowed. But... But, 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 but he does. Sheep can overeat. You give chocolate bars and cheese to rats and they will to, you know, ad libitum as much as they want and they will eat and eat and eat until they become severely obese. Not a human thing. Overeating is adaptive. You know, if you know there's a big feed now but in six months' time there'll be nothing, well, boy, you better store your food on your body while you have it. We have colour and taste as digestibility cues. We respond to certain colours. Food is attractive if it's you know, red or orange or yellow uh, in particular. Um, these, among fruits, are digestibility cues. Carbohydrate is turning into... Non-digestible carbohydrate is being turned into, into digestible carbohydrate. Protein requirements. Relative to other primate species, humans have low protein requirements. This is important because if we had the same protein requirements as chimpanzees, then we would not have been able to make a transition to agriculture. Because the protein levels that come with the consumption of a diet that is predominantly rice or wheat or maize uh, doesn't carry enough protein to sustain a chimpanzee, for example. So having low protein requirements is actually something that was permissive of major transformation in uh, the hominins and in homo sapiens. Nutritional requirements are not just set by body size. There's energy turnover, undernutrition and obesity, both of these being things that 
determine how much of certain nutrients you need. Now, within the mitochondrion, we have aspects of energy metabolism that require vitamins B1, B2, B3 as coenzymes in the generation of um, adenosine triphosphate, ATP. The more you turn over in energy, the more you turn over in those vitamins. They're not just standard, um, a standard level according to a body size. These things are approximated in the requirements uh, for an average level of physical activity, which is actually quite a low level of physical activity. <coughs> we have a number of vitamins that are vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, selenium, iron, magnesium. They're antioxidant vitamins. They are involved in mopping up free radicals. They repair tissues. Um, so if you have a high infectious disease load, then your physiological need for these things will increase. Now, the way that nutritional requirements have been set, traditionally, has been very Eurocentric, very Americocentric. It's set um, to people who have, historically now, very low levels of infection, and, um, uh, and to, to, to people who have uh, a very clean food supply. So the levels of those nutrient intakes are not set for coping with infection. So these are problems in the, in the, uh, in, in the nutritional requirements. There are structural issues as well. Calcium, um, for example. Teenage girls, uh, at the one stage in their life when they probably at least caricature this in Britain, they might choose to move from drinking milk to drinking wine or something else, Bacardi breezes maybe, I don't know, uh, um, is exactly the time when they should be, sorry, I don't need to people, sorry, uh, is exactly the time when they should be increasing their milk intake, uh, because as they go through pubertal growth spurt, that's when they need to be laying down calcium tissue. The implications of this are that the tissue you lay down at puberty, women, um, have, will then determine the extent to which you may suffer osteoporosis in later life. So that critical window for every woman in this room has already passed. But you'll know for the future, hey. Iron and anemia, there's a design flaw in, 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 uh, in, the, in the human system. Uh, Females are in permanent estrus compared to most primate species that will come into estrus once a year. They have seasonal breeding. Humans don't have seasonal breeding. You can have women in developing countries who are constantly um, under uh, either, uh, either having pregnancies or are, have menstruation. Menstruation is a big loss of iron. The design is that humans should be having lots of babies. As soon as we start to make those changes that reduce the number of children that people have, then the problem of iron deficiency anemia among women becomes a major problem, which it is across the world. You cannot separate that from the changing reproductive schedules that are, you know, that are politically and economically determined. Okay, life history. Humans are a big, biggish primate. Not the biggest of mammals, but there are advantages to larger body size across species. 
we have an extended growth curve. Okay, this represents time from 0 to 20 years, and this is just the rate of growth. So, in infancy, humans are growing very, very quickly, high growth rate. But by the time we get to one year of age, we're growing extremely slowly. This is uh, one solution to um, creating large body size. Large body size has ecological advantages. If you're a species of large body size, then it actually increases your diet breadth. How humans do large body size, grow slowly, invest <clears throat> a little every day. Now this isn't in relation to being of large body size, this is in relation to having a large brain and socialising one's infants and socialising one's children. A long period of learning for humans before they become, uh, before they become juveniles, before they become adults. So this extended period of learning has is, is down to the privileging of cultural responses to adaptive problems in the evolutionary past. Larger body size happens uh, very, very slowly. We take that for granted. But what it means is that our daily energy requirements uh, for growth are stretched out over a considerable period. This is average requirements for energy. These are UK data, but it doesn't really matter. But they are stratified according to gender and according to age. And this is largely a body size issue. Now, we know that children in India grow more slowly than children um, in the UK or the US, for example, then what we would expect is the dietary requirements might be set lower, which they are in India. That has been called the small but healthy argument, that, you know, Indians are different, they can be smaller, they can, you know, they, they, they grow to a, to, to a smaller body size, but as adults they have similar kinds of functional responses to physiological tests and so on which is all well and good. There is a problem in this argument, and that problem is that actually that small but healthy um, uh, physique is developed at the cost of high mortality. That's an issue, and I'll come on to that in the, in the next, next lecture. Anyway, this is stratified by age and gender, but when you get to, to adult life, gender becomes important because women both reproduce and have reproductive potentialities. Both of these things affect nutritional requirements. In lactation, lactation is the energetically most expensive thing that a woman can do. Um, the most expensive piece of physiology, additional physiology. And that should be met from increased dietary, uh, increased dietary intake. Now, that doesn't happen everywhere. Men happen not to lactate. Men happen not to get pregnant. And so those biological differences um, need, to be, uh, need to be acknowledged. So life history component is, uh, is important. Also, humans live longer than they ever did now, so you can't say, well, get to the age of 40 and then die, because that's the kind of natural expected uh, reproductive lifespan. I'm pleased about that, because my reproductive schedule is not particularly natural. It's, uh, it's normal for, for, for around here, um, first child at the age of, God knows, Thirty-five, I guess, um, and three children after that. I have colleagues who are in their late fifties who now have second wives who are much younger than them, 
and who are demanding children from them, and they're getting children. So there are men who are going through a whole second reproductive life cycle um, when they're approaching their 60s. That didn't happen with Homo erectus. So we live longer, but it doesn't mean that we just decay and die. Actually, living longer creates a new set of nutritional, ecological, ecological issues. So the natural human diet, nutritional ecology. There are different views about this. This is Catherine Milton, who has argued that the plant-based diet of, homin- of human ancestors um, <clears throat> should lead to recommendations to increase the number and variety of fresh fruit and vegetables and diets rather than increase intakes of domesticated animal and animal fat and protein. Well, yes, we can agree with that. But it's not so straightforward. There are a number of number of issues which I've alluded to already. First of all, you know, what is heart human, what is hominin, what is primate, what is mammalian? And then when we look at human feeding and human diet in evolutionary context, how has it been shaped? So let's take a look at um, mammalian feeding first of all. Most mammals respond to uh, respond to dietary cues. They have um, optimal foraging considerations. They balance their time grazing with their needs for, uh, uh, for, for for consumption and reproduction. With respect to comparative primatology, body size constraints will largely determine whether an animal is likely to be a fruit eater, a leaf eater, or, or, uh, or an, uh, an animal eater, insect eater. Food selection among primates is highly developed. So we think about humans and how much potential food there is out there. Uh, not at this time of year. Everything's dead that I could eat out there. But other times of year, there are things I could probably pick off bushes around Oxford and eat. They might not be the most palatable, but they would be digestible to some degree. Uh, we think of that as being a particularly human thing, that we're picky eaters. Actually, primates are picky eaters. Of what's on the tree, they'll be very selective about what they take. Um, and this food selection is, has been related to trichromy, the ability, primates' uh, ability to see, um, see colour. Seeing colour is very useful. It's very because you can identify uh, uh, palatability cues, energy density cues. And also taste sensitivity. In this chart, what we've got is taste threshold for sucrose against body weight for primates. Now, the evolution of taste uh, preference has come with... um, Larger, larger species um, ha, uh, with, with, with lower, uh, those with lower sweet sensitivity are able to have a larger diet breadth. Larger diet breadth um, then creates evolutionary advantages, which will then allow for, for differential selection of um, those with, uh, with, 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 lower ta- with lower sweetness sensitivity. That is, if you can taste sweetness, even the tiniest, tiniest amount of sweetness in something out there, then you're more likely to eat it than if you can't. And if you have a, you know, uh, if um, 
one member of the audience were to be pit against a, a macaque monkey out there in springtime when there's uh, different kinds of, 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 of new foods emerging, then whoever that person was would be uh, uh, at an advantage because they have much lower sensitivity sensitivity at larger body size. Find more things palatable, could eat many more things out there. Because, because you had a lower taste sensitivity. This is where humans sit. We're kind of in the same place as, as chimpanzees. Gorillas are down here. Uh, gorillas can eat a whole range of leaves and find them tasty because they can taste nice, uh, niceness and things that, that, uh, that, uh, uh, that, we would, that we would find bland and uninteresting. Okay, hominin ecology. What do we do in recent times? We get bigger brains, um, post-homo erectus. Um, we improve our foraging. We start to use tools. We have social behavior. We start to symbolize what we do through food. And a lot of the complexity in contemporary society is, is, uh, uh, and its food use is associated with, with, food, with food symbolism. In brief, the way to intensification of the human diet is something like this. Um, from an unprocessed diet, you move to non-oral food preparation, so selective, selective butchering of, uh, of animals, specialized hunting and gathering of species, then the control of plant and animal resources through, uh, through domestication. Driven by ecological stresses. Now, the, the conventional... Um, evolution, human evolutionary narrative is an out-of-Africa story um, with the emergence of Homo erectus maybe around 1.82 million years ago. And the uh, ecological stresses uh, were ones of um, the decline of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the forests and the breaking up of, uh, of uh, ecological niches into, into, into mosaics, which drove um, the need for um, different kinds of um, food appropriation in the, in the changing landscape. Um, so, being able to use the ground to, for locomotion as opposed to staying just in trees would allow you know, a, broader, uh, a, a, a broader resource niche, for example. Um, <clears throat> what are the basal hominin adaptations? We go back to Australopithecines, the seeds, grasses, fruit, some meat, underground storage organs, and so on. Uh, some little meat. If you go back to four million years ago, you'd say, well, the natural human diet would be something, uh, something, something like that. Uh, the balance that needs to be met in terms of dietary diversity um, is what is digestible. So colour cues are one thing that tell you whether something's digestible and the bioavailability of nutrients. Against that, you have toxicity. If you can only detect what, is, what has high levels of carbohydrate and you can't detect um, what is toxic, then you might have problems. So being able to taste bitterness, for example, is one kind of toxicity cue. So being able to taste if the balance of sweetness versus, 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 uh, versus bitterness um, uh, will tell you whether you should be eating or something. Even now, you know, if you give somebody something that is extremely bitter, uh, they're likely to just, just eject it from their mouth before it even gets, you know, halfway down their throat. 
Um, and that's, a, you know, that's a, a response to toxicity. Secondly, seasonality. There's no such thing as a diet that exists in a monotonic, across-the-year kind of way. We may have one now with our supermarkets, but traditionally, again, go back you know, to, uh, to, uh, go back to nature, and everywhere, everywhere we find seasonality. And in terms of foraging, what you can have is also limited by competition from St. Patrick's species, that is, species that are sharing the same niche. So we don't just forage what we like. You can be placed towards the top of the top of the food chain, but you might need to amend your foraging according to um, according to time of day, so you're not competing with a particular species, or just move into 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 a different adaptive niche because there's competition. And again, we take for granted now that we live in a, uh, an environment in which um, uh, there is no competition. <coughs>